Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is the fourth and final in our series on the creeds. Today, we will be discussing the Apostles' Creed. Grab yourself a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. I'm Pastor Amanda Zenzelow, and I serve as the pastor at Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Don Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, number four. <laughs> Finally getting to the end. And ironically, this is the shortest one, isn't it? It's the shortest of the creeds, mm-hmm. but I'll probably, I might end up talking about it the longest. Oh, that's fair. Okay, <laughs> well, so. we'll see. We'll see. Who wrote this? This was an early, early creed, and the first representation, the first proof that we have that it exists comes from a letter in 390, which is after we talked in our last podcast about the Council of Nicaea Mm -hmm. and the Ecumenical Council. But it was written about in this letter in 390 in a way that makes it sound like this has been around for much longer than the Nicene Creed, okay, which is certainly longer than the Athanasian Creed. Mm -hmm. And given that this particular creed doesn't really address the Trinitarian, like it talks about the three parts of God, but it doesn't really assert the divinity of Christ. That whole spiel between Arius and Athanasius has not blown up within the church when this creed is created. Well, I'm guessing then that this was what had been in use. And then two guys were like, well, what about this particular aspect? It could very well be. Okay. And the legend says that each of the 12 apostles contributed a line oh. to the Apostles' Creed. Well, isn't that convenient? Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So where do you find it then? Well, this is also in our hymnal. Okay. And for us during our worship practice, if we use it, it probably is printed in our bulletin or we'll direct people to page 105 in the Cranberry Hymnal, the Evangelical Lutheran Book of Worship. But yeah, you can find it and you can Google it. It's easy to find. But just to clarify then that none of these show up in scripture anywhere. It's something that whomever was worshiping at the time in the early church developed and used. Correct. Okay. So this is something that comes out of an understanding of scripture, but is not written within the scripture. Okay. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's kind of one of those things that like, it's a document that we use to practice from, but it's not the document that we base things on. Okay. Like a study guide for an actual novel or something. Yeah, something like that. Okay. This is the how we live what we believe kind of a piece or how we understand what we believe really hard to explain, but Martin Luther tries to explain it by using it in the small catechism. Okay. So the Bible is what everything is based on, right? Our scripture is where we get our story. Sure. And then from that, we have to try to figure out as communities how to live it and how to agree on what we believe from out of this scripture book. For us as Lutherans, that's where the Book of Concord comes in. Okay. Within the Book of Concord is this wonderful thing Martin Luther wrote, which was the small catechism. And what that was is the small catechism takes these pieces that we've taken out as practices from our scripture and starts to explain what they are. So Martin Luther wrote about what is communion and what is baptism and what is confession and the Lord's Prayer and takes the Lord's Prayer into each of its segments and explains it. And then he takes the Apostles' Creed and he goes through each of the three petitions of the Apostles' Creed. But not the Nicene Creed. Not the Nicene, not in the small catechism. Okay. In the small catechism, it's this is what he wrote in order for, and we did a podcast on this a mm-hmm. long time ago. So if mm-hmm. people want to, they can go back to it. But this was for like people 
in the countryside, in the German countryside, trying to teach their kids about how to live the faith. Okay. And so the small catechism includes the Apostles' Creed as this opportunity to explain what we believe about who God is based upon how we read and understand the story of our scripture. So what does he have to say about it? He does a lot of, what does this mean? And then we should fear and love God so that. (laughs) Okay. But kind of gives the breakdown of each of these three petitions. So we have God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And what does it mean that God made everything? And we can sit and ruminate on that for years, especially in the time in which we are currently living. Sure. But if we believe that something divine created everything that we see, then what does that tell us about our response to it and our responsibility to it? So that's the first petition of the creed. Okay. The second petition of the creed talks about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Who Jesus was, places him within history by naming Pontius Pilate. Okay. Speaks of the virgin birth talks about that he was crucified, died, and was buried, that he descended to the dead or descended to hell, rose again, he ascended and is living with God, and will come again to judge the living and the dead, right? So it's like the most basic understanding of who we know Jesus to be. He's not getting hung up on divinity or no divinity either. No, neither Martin nor, well, I can't say that. I haven't read his commentary on the second petition enough to know if he does go there or not. Okay, But this particular creed It predates that argument. Okay. And so it just tells the story of who Jesus was and sets it within a historic context and says what has happened and what we believe will happen. That's the second petition. We don't get the begotten, not made of one being with a father, true God from true God. The fancy language. Mm -hmm. None of that is there. It's just Jesus was born of Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, was buried, rose again. Mm -hmm. All of that is what's there. I'm in the last part. The last part, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the resurrection of the body, the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting, right? So again, it's a little bit of the practices of what's there. There is, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. but it's a Catholic with a small C, not Catholic with a large C. So it's not talking about a specific denomination. Okay. The word Catholic means universal. Kind of like the word corporate means large group. Okay. So. A little used meaning. Yeah. Which is confusing for a lot of folks who come and start to see that. They're like, well, I'm not in a Catholic church. Exactly. But we believe in one Catholic, one universal church. We believe that God's presence through Jesus is a bigger deal than denominational theories. I find it fascinating that that which can be such a sticking point for so many people, is the one thing that they haven't changed. I know, right. And the translations, I've not seen someone say, you know, we believe in one universal church. No, in all the years. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So would you say then that this is the version, the creed that you most often use in church? I think that in many Protestant churches, this is often a creed. If you're going to use one of the big formal creeds and not an affirmation of faith, Okay. The Apostles is kind of the default go-to. Okay. It's the shorter. Really, that's a big part of it. Is that <laughs> it's a shorter one. It feels less formal. And a mm-hmm. lot of the times our denomination right now has a little less formality about it. There are still some high church ELCA congregations, don't get me wrong. But there are a lot more casual ELCA Lutheran churches. Well, particularly here in the Pacific Northwest, which is known for its casual nature in most regards. Yeah, absolutely. And so the Apostles' Creed gets used, and I would say that in the congregations that I have served, 
affirmations of faith are really common. Really? Yeah. More so than the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, for better or for worse. I think that a lot of times people have a difficult time understanding what the Apostles' Creed is about and why, and I don't know that there's enough time spent on education or opportunities around education with the Creed Yeah, to make it not be something that just feels like an outdated, formal piece of material that doesn't have anything to do with my daily life kind of a response. So is confirmation then the only time that you would have actually done any sort of studying about it? Sometimes. Oh, sometimes. Yeah, I guess it depends on, you know, I've been here six years and I've taught the Apostles' Creed once in six years. Yeah. To be fair, right? I led a women's retreat on it. (laughs) And that was it, right? Like, it really depends upon what kind of educational opportunities are in your congregations or what people have the capacity to be attending, what people have the capacity to be interested in and intrigued by. And I think that many people don't get real jazzed and add a date to their calendar to come sit and talk for an hour about the Apostles' Creed. No, no. I was thinking more in terms of having gone through something in the Midwest that there was a system in place and you knew that every confirmation year would go through and they would have this particular curriculum. Yeah. And definitely for confirmation, students get the Apostles' Creed. Okay. Because the small catechism is a part of the confirmation curriculum. So confirmation curriculums typically include concentrated study on scripture and concentrated study on the catechism, which includes the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, Mm -hmm. what is baptism, what is communion, Mm -hmm. what is confession, right? So those are the kind of base pieces of knowledge that kids are absolutely going to get. No matter how truncated the confirmation program is, those are included. Okay, then that's going to lead me to my last question. I asked you last time if you had it memorized in mm-hmm. terms of the Nicene Creed. You had a lovely answer for that. Thank you for those of us <laughs> who have terrible memorization skills. Yeah, Grace. Uh-huh. <laughs> but do you have a favorite part of this one? Actually, I do. It's a part that I have been really intrigued by the implications of, particularly in the last two to three years. Okay. And it's the line, he descended to the dead. Okay. And that it's in... From the very beginning, this idea that Christ descended to the dead. And it was because of a digging into the story with Dr. Sweet that this came from, from my doctoral program. And I wonder about the timing, but we know that Judas hung himself Mm -hmm. when he knew that he couldn't, like he tried to give back the gold and release Jesus. And then he hung himself when he couldn't undo what he had done. Sure. And Judas dies. And the very first act that Christ does after the cross is descend to the dead. And there is something so strikingly beautiful to me about the concept that the first thing that Christ does after dying on the cross is goes to find Judas. You think that's it? It's not he's going to go for everybody down there. I think maybe everyone there, but that that's where God goes first. Okay. Is to those who have been lost and those who have gone and to find them and to be present with them. And I don't know what, because we don't actually talk about that line in the creed very much. 
we don't actually dig into this. There's not a lot out there about that. And our scripture doesn't talk about it very much. There's just not a lot there, but we believe it. We believe that Jesus died and went, the other translation is descended into hell, Mm -hmm. went into this place of separation from God. And to ponder what the implications are for Jesus to have gone to find Judas. Oh, that changes a lot of things. It's, it's a beautiful idea. And can I prove that to you scripturally? Can I give that? I No, I can't. Okay. But it's in our creed. And I think it matches the character of Christ. So will I preach that on a Sunday morning or will I teach that in an official class or put it in a curriculum? Maybe not, but I'll put it out there in the airwaves and say, hey, let's imagine. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. I wonder what that really means that the first thing that Jesus does after dying on the cross is goes to find his lost disciple and goes to be present with the one who had lost so much hope and lost so much of who he was that he had to end his own life. And in a world and in a time where suicide and self-hatred are so rampant. Oh, definitely. I think that that holds a message of hope in that one little line in our creed that so often can get overlooked that I've just let it kind of bat around in my head for the last three to four years. And so when I say the Apostles' Creed, That's one of those lines that, okay, Jesus is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about the Apostles' Creed. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on another topic. As do I. And thank you all for coming along this short journey, these little cup podcasts about our creeds. There is always more to learn about them. This has just been a 5,000-mile flyover. So if you would like to learn more about them, please feel free to do some research. Send us your favorite findings. Let us know the things that make you wonder about them. Or just send us your questions. You can always reach out to us at Facebook or by sending an email at podcast at centralportland.org. Until we are back in your ears again, remember, God loves you no matter what.